0: Thank you so much, Roger, for that wonderful introduction. Can you hear me okay? Is it all right? Kind of glad the lights are dim. I'm wearing my snow boots. (laughs) So if you don't see my snow boots, (laughs) it's kind of a chilly evening. Thank you all so much for coming here. It indeed is very special to be here at the Hagley Museum and Library to be speaking about my work on John Vassos. my research and the incredible images in this book come from the David Sarnoff Library, and I'm really grateful for the generosity of the Hagley Museum and Library letting, to let me use many of these images and advertisements that you'll see tonight. Thank you so much for that. And thank you all for coming out to hear about John Vassos. He's really just not a household name. You know, not Most people don't know who that is. Who is John Vassos? And I have devoted the past 10 years of my life plus to, <laughs> to telling the story of this man who I think is really important in terms of telling the story of the look and feel of our everyday household technologies. And he had his hand in designing radios, televisions, well into the computer age as a leading designer at RCA, the Radio Corporation of America many young people today don't know. What is RCA? I say it was like the apple of the 20th century. It was a major, major business and corporation that had its hand in everything from the manufacturing of radios and televisions to the production of broadcast radio and television with the ownership of NBC. So it was a very important player in terms of American media history. So I wanted to tell the story of John Vassos as a way of not only celebrating this incredible Thank you, designer, but also kind of telling the story of a moment in American media technology design history that kind of has been forgotten as we all kind of have our iPhones and new technologies, to kind of go back to the past and see what it could bring to the present in terms of how our media technologies function, how we use them. So he's, he's an important guy. <laughs> His story was never told. As Roger said, I wrote the first biography of him. Um, And I feel like he has something important to kind of teach us about media technologies even today. I'm going to start with his best-known work. And this uh, phonograph, the RCA special phonograph, is held in many museum collections. It's currently on display at the Cooper Hewitt National Design Museum in New York. It's at the Victoria and Albert Museum. It's sort of his best-known work. And I wanted to show it to you because it, it kind of touches on a number of points that I want to make tonight about him as a designer. And some of the important things to know about John Vassos was, one, he was a modernist. He was very much wedded to the ideas of modern design. He wasn't into kind of like more like trendy, making everything look streamlined or like an airplane. He really was very much interested in the materiality of the process of design. So he used new materials. Here he used aluminum, which in 1935 was very daring and new. It really, up until that time, had only been used in architecture, like in the Empire State Building. So he's doing something new with the material. He's doing something new with the shape of this portable phonograph player. It's a hand-crank phonograph player. It's really cool if you ever get to see it. I got to see one last summer and just to see it in motion, and it's just really wonderful. But really what's so wonderful about it is his very spare use of the detail and he's thinking about the user of this portable phonograph so he's thinking about the color he uses the color red to highlight the most salient areas of this beautiful phonograph that really looks like nothing ever that came before it looks like it kind of landed from outer space so he's kind of pointing out the the handle and the red Bakelite and the, the turning table and the speaker also in the red plastic and the turning um, mechanism and he adds fi- a filing area on the top of this case where you can handily file your records so if you're on a date you'll know like, which record you're picking out. So I just thought he put a lot of attention and um, care into this phonograph as far as the user was concerned. So he's a very um, early thinker or user of what we call like, ergonomics or user-centered design we would say today. So I think that's a very important part of his career. Um, and this is a very beautiful design that you, you may or may not have seen a lot of people ask me, how did you find this John Vassos? Why did you write about John Vassos? And I like to tell the story because it's kind of like the story of his life. Like he always got forgotten. No one, you know, he was very prominent at the time in the the 30s and 40s and, and later in his career because he was a leading designer at RCA for almost four decades. But now he's like just unknown and forgotten into the annals of history. And part of that is because he had a dual career. He was an incredible artist and illustrator. He illustrated about 14 beautiful Art Deco books um, in the 1930s, some with his wife, Ruth Vassos. And um, I discovered him. I was an exhibition assistant at the Cooper Hewitt Design Museum in New York and working on an exhibit about the history of American industrial design. And we were looking for people to feature who were the important people. And some people you may have heard of, we featured like Henry Dreyfuss, Raymond Loewy, some of the top names that come to mind when you think of American industrial design. And as we were looking for more people to feature, I came across a book, which was published in 1975 by Dover, of these incredible illustrations, like the one um, you see here on your right, which is called Dromophobia, Fear of Crossing the Street, which is from his 1931 book, Phobia. It was only fifteen hundred copies of this book printed, but um, when I saw this image, I was like, "Yeah, that's what it's like to cross the street in New York City." It's like sometimes you just feel so small and giant cars. I feel I live in Baltimore now, and that's what it feels like. You know, it's scary sometimes. I just thought he had such a good sense of what it was like to be living in a city and in the, in the, in crossing the street. I just really he touched me deeply, and I kind of put his um, him on the back burner. It was kind of a slow burn until I was looking for a dissertation topic Um, a few years later. And I was in an interdisciplinary program in art history and media studies and technology. And I went back, and I I went to the Smithsonian Archives of American Art, where the bulk of his papers are held. And I went back, and I had not only found that he did these amazing illustrations, but also he designed the first mass manufactured television set at RCA, which was premiered in a really splashy way in the 1939 World's Fair. You could see this image here, which is from the wonderful Hagley, um, the David Sarnoff library here, of just like television. Wow. And it was just so interesting to look back and to see all the work he had done in radio and working on computers. And I just thought, wow, this isn't a really important person. So I decided to go for it and write my dissertation about him and learn more. I'll tell you a bit about his background before I kind of launch into his um, other accomplishments that he did at RCA, John Plato Vasikopoulos, that was his kind of um, birth name. He was born in 1898 to Greek parents who were living in Romania. His mother was an artist, so I think he took a lot after his mother, and his father was an influential scholar and historian. And they um, they soon moved to Constantinople, now Istanbul. And uh, when he was, he was young, he showed a lot of talent as a skilled artist and um, a drawing that he did of the Turkish authorities really angered them. So he had to kind of flee for his life. He jumped on a ship and made his way to the United States, um, landing in 1918 in Virginia and made his way north to New York City. He moved to Barrow Street. He was like immersed in this really exciting artistic movement happening in New York City at the time he enrolled in the Art Students League, where a lot of prominent artists were teaching. He took classes with John Sloan of the Ashcan School and other people. Um, and he, but he kind of like develops his own artistic style, which is very much influenced by modernist design. It's kind of ethereal. It's kind of subjective and dreamlike. He's influenced by German Expressionism. Um, in just like a number of factors, but it's not about realism. It's just sort of a, about this creating a really interesting perspective on the world and on modernity. He is um, hired to do a series of ads for Packard Motor Cars. Um, seen here, he does about 20 of these ads for a brand new magazine at the time called The New Yorker. And um, he's just kind of like, he's doing some advertising and illustrations. And um, he opens up a company in Midtown called New York Display Company. So he kind of really hits the ground running a bit with his illustration business. He's also doing signs and theater work. He's just really immersed in the kind of modernist avant-garde culture of the early 1920s in New York City. It's a very exciting time. His advertising work caught the attention of a prominent publishing house called E.P. Dutton, who contracted him to illustrate three books by Oscar Wilde starting in 1927, where he was commissioned to do um, three books. He starts with a book... Uh, Salome to um, illustrate the book Salome, which in England had been illustrated by Aubrey Beardsley, um, and it was a very um, daring book and very, um, excuse me, just very shocking. And they kind of saw Vassos as this new shocking modernist artist who could really um, titillate and excite American audiences. And it and it did. It was very exciting. The three books were a big a big hit. So he went on to do a few more books for E.P. Dutton, um, one of which was um, well. Phobia, a book of Ultimo, and as what was part of the books when he broke away from when he broke away from the Oscar Wilde books, he kind of allowed him to develop a critique of modernity, of mass society, of the machine age, and it was not just a celebration, which you could see in the Packard car ad, but also like a fear and a kind of. Frightening and questions about what's going to happen in this new machine age. You know, are we going to be okay? Are we going to survive? And in fact, his 1930 book Ultimo was about climate change and a climate disaster, and people forced to go underground and live. And I'm just sort of questioning about modernity. And this image um, over, over there um, on your right is called Mechanophobia from the book Phobia, which is like you know fear of factory and machines. This is another aspect of him that I found really interesting, was this contradiction between somebody who was questioning the tools of modernity and the machine age and then went on to develop its most kind of critical tools, like television. So I thought that was interesting. But this was sort of his early drawings. Um, people collect them. Barbara Streisand collect them. <laughs> Andy Warhol, there's one going up on auction tomorrow. These are a very beautiful um, part of his career and his skills as an artist. He became a bit of a playboy. He was popular. He was featured in magazines. We don't know him today, but back in the 30s, you might know him. I mean, there's reviews like in newspapers all over the country about him. He was featured in magazines. Um, I love the the picture over there on the, the right of him, which was um, done by done by a friend of his, a modernist painter, James Doherty, which was recently collected by the the High Museum in Atlanta, and it's color. (laughs) I have to say, like, when you're working as a historian in these archives, it's so rare to find a color image. So I was, like, so thrilled to find this. Like, there's John, and he was a bit of a playboy. He, He moved with his wife, Ruth, to a penthouse on Riverside Drive. He had lots of prominent people who were his friends, like the photographer Margaret Burke White, Nicholas Cassavetes. Edward Bernays, his book, one of his books called Contempo inspired a magazine of the same name with writers like Ezra Pound and Sinclair Lewis. So he was very much a part of this intellectual and artistic scene. Well, what did he do next? <laughs> well, what everyone was doing in the 1920s, if you were a, a a bright artist, if you were young and ambitious, you became an industrial designer. And this was sort of like the new and growing fields, kind of like developers today, like everyone wants to be a developer. Um, You became an industrial designer. So he kind of entered into this new field. Um, He said his expertise was in psychology, and that was kind of drawing from his book, Phobia, which he had written in collaboration with a famous uh, psychoanalyst. And he kind of sold himself. He said, I I could do this, I I could design objects and physical objects. So one of his first commissions was to help the Perry Company in New York, which was the turnstile manufacturer. And um, they were manufacturing turnstiles like the one up there, which had a a propeller-like mechanism to push people through. And people often like say, oh yeah, I learned a lot about turnstiles in your talk. Turnstiles, ha ha. Well, turnstiles <laughs> were really important in a mass society. You, know, you have millions of people in the New York subway. You have millions of people going to world's fairs. And so Vastos came up with a really brilliant idea to improve the turnstile, which was to change the turning mechanism from this propeller type thing you know, he he observed people. He stood in the subway and he watched people in the Empire State Building where some of these were installed and he watched people and he saw that it kind of goosed them in the behind when they walked by, their coats were getting stuck. So he's doing really early research in user interaction and user design and he says we really have to improve this. So he creates this turning mechanism like this three-legged stool on its side and This image in the middle is from the Archives of American Art. He's kind of thinking through. You find a lot of these design drawings. Like, how are they working through these ideas? And what came of it was this wonderful 1933 design of the turnstile. And if you've ever been in the New York City subway in the past 20 years, if you've ever been um, like Billy Joel has... (laughs) Billy Joe has gone through this, uh, that, this turnstile. I mean, the John Vasos turnstile is ubiquitous. It became the standard in the in the field of turnstiles. I live in Baltimore. If you go into Camden Yards, you're going to go through a Vasos turnstile. And it's just this wonderful kind of relic of an older technology of a 1933 design. And he, not only is it functional, but it, it's beautiful. You know, it has a kind of chrome detailing. It has the kind of vertical speed whiskers, we sometimes call them, of the 1930s, kind of representing speed. Um, Anyway, it became a, kind of a, a standard in the turnstile uh, world, and you've probably gone through it. But it's sort of like well-designed because you don't notice it, and that kind of speaks to the beauty of its, of its design. So that was, that was good. He just hit the ground running. He was also continuing to do work as an artist at the time. He was hired by WCAU, which is a, um, was a flagship CBS station in Philadelphia. He was asked to create the backdrop for radio shows at this incredible um, monument. Be- I don't know if you've seen it, um, this Art Deco monument to um, radio. And it's still there. It's now the, um, right, the, <laughs> the Art Institute. It's just it's this gorgeous building. So he was asked to create some the murals that went in the backdrop because he was also a muralist. And he kind of created these beautiful murals. And while he was there, he was discovered by um, top executive at RCA who said, hey, do you want to come to design some radios for us. And he was like, yes, of course I do. This is like a growing field. Radio is, is massive. You know, people are buying them like crazy. Uh, in 1920, you had the first kind of widespread radio broadcasts. By 1929, over 10 million families owned radios. And by the 1939, more than 28 million people owned a radio. And it was something everyone had to have in their homes. So this was a massive, massive industry, an incredible opportunity for him to join with the major player, the major company in the field of radio manufacturing and radio broadcasting. And RCA, um, by this time in 1933. They had recently um, built the 70-story RCA building at 30 Rock as like the epicenter of radio production. So it was, it was like a really, you know, a sign of their massive power. They had recently acquired the Victor uh, Company in Camden, New Jersey. And um, so they had adding phonographs to their radio, radio manufacturing business and um, just growing like crazy. So it was a very exciting opportunity for a young modernist designer to take a stab at designing radios. And interestingly, at this time, RCA saw their radio broadcasts as a way to sell radios. It wasn't really like the advertising and commercial side of it hadn't wasn't firmly entrenched yet. So it was like a way to sell radios was to have good radio broadcasting. So it was a very exciting time. They welcomed him to the company, and I just I just love this, over here, they put his picture in the middle, young, handsome John Vassos, surrounded by a number of things he's designed and illustrated at this point, including the book Salome I mentioned, and you know, an image from Phobia, and the Packard car ads, and it was like, look at him, he's going to bring such great knowledge to our company, I just love this, and this actually comes from Broadcast News, this image, which is this incredible journal and repository of RCA business history, which is held by the David Sarnoff Library, and they um, allowed me to use lots of these incredible um, images from this magazine. And it's just, if anyone's doing radio history, <laughs> you have to see this magazine. It's really incredible. Um, but anyway, so here's Masso, surrounded by his objects and designs. And it was the idea was like he could come and help this radio manufacturing and phonograph manufacturing side of things. So he said, you know, okay, I'll come on board. And he kind of moved into their offices in Camden, New Jersey, which is now like condos, this beautiful, <laughs> this beautiful manufacturing center. And um, when he arrived at the company, this is kind of what radios were looking like at the time. Um, you know, in 1924, a radio was not something you really wanted to have in your living room. It was, you know, sp- spilling battery acid. It just wasn't. It wasn't nice. It was maybe more for like the tinkerer husband or you know, kids to be doing in the basement or in the garage or something. But not something you wanted in your house. It wasn't until the evolution of the technology of radios, where the speaker was internalized, um, you could plug the radio in, so the power source changed um, from only the battery, and um, you had the radio tube. So you have like a change in the radio technology. So. What happened was people were drawing from the Victorian era for their design inspiration. So the radio in the middle, I don't know if any of you are like radio collectors or are familiar with the cathedral radio. Vasos hated it. He was a modernist. He said, radios should look spare. They should be about form following function. They shouldn't look like a Victorian piece of furniture. And you like even the, every detail of this looks kind of from another era. It's not about modernity, it's about like the past. So even like the speaker grille looks like lace. You know, and just the, the wooden and the, and the shape of it and just the, the idea of it is harkening back to a previous era. Another form that the radio, the larger radios, the consoles were taking was more of a kind of armoire shape. You could see over in that ad with, you know, with the spindly legs, again, kind of drawing from a Victorian, um, older heritage of design. And, you know, this was because radio was... Was so new. There was no real consensus of like, what, what should a radio look like? There was really nothing else like it. I mean, people may have had a telephone if you were very wealthy, but that was very different. A radio was bringing public voices into the home. It was just something so dramatic and radical. It was, it was, was nothing like anything that had ever existed before. So it makes sense that designers were drawing from the past. You know, what other influences would they have? And, um, well, Vasos didn't like that at all. He was drawing his design idiom or his repository of what design should be like from new sources. You know, from, he was about new materials. He was also influenced by modernist design schools like the Bauhaus in Germany, which very much drew upon um, geometric shapes. You know, They're very much wedded to using simple shapes, using um, new materials, uh, the idea of uh, Marcel Breuer's 1926 Wassily chair was drawing from bicycles, you know, bicycle tubes. And that's sort of like where Vasos was coming from. He said, you need to be true to the machine. You can't try to hide it behind, like, lace lace. You know, you have to really bring it to the forefront. And that's what was so exciting for him as a modernist to be working in radio. I have a quote from him up there. That's kind of my professor's side, you know, <laughs> to bring this quote. But he says, you know, radio form must follow function. Radio must derive its design and form from its function, which is sound. So you see in the Vassos radios, I'm going to show you, they're about drawing attention to the speaker grill. You know, where's the sound coming out? They're about the knobs. They're about the functionality of the radio. They're not about making it look like an airplane or a teardrop or You know, a speeding locomotive. So that's different. That sets him apart from other designers. At the same time, when you hear streamlined, you might be thinking of those designs. Interestingly, this was one of his first radios for the company, and he went too far. You've probably never seen a radio like this before in your life. (laughs) Just, it didn't take off. This was not the idiom. This wasn't how radio was supposed to look like. I mean, there are a few of these radios out there. In my opinion, it's like the most beautiful radio ever. You know, it's black lacquer. It's just about the machinery of it. But it didn't take off. It was too radical. They had to tame him a bit. He, some others came out in this series, um, which were less radical, but they had to kind of tame him a bit to make him his designs to be more in keeping with popular sensibility and popular taste. Um, other designers didn't know what radios would look like either. There was just really no sense of what it would look like. I, I, as a media historian, I just found this so interesting. Like, What should it look like, a radio? You know, so people like the designer, French-American designer, Raymond Loewy. Um, over here, you see his 1933 Globe radio. Maybe some of you have seen this. This actually is held by a lot of museums. And he's envisioning the radio in terms of place, you know, finding your station on the dial. And that, that's not a bad way of thinking about what a radio should be, but again, sorry, Loey, this this didn't take off. This isn't what radios look like. Walter Darwin Teague's radio there in the middle, his 1935 Nocturne radio for Spartan, it was made of a giant mirror. It's very beautiful. It looks like um, something you have on your dresser. You know, blue mirror. Just some museums have it as well. There's very few left because like a lot of them broke. Because the mirror, not very durable. Not you know, not maybe not the best material. So this isn't the form or shape that radio took in the end. You may have seen Norman Belgetty's 1940 Patriot Radio. This is the one that was on the postage stamp of great industrial design and. Um, It looks like a flag. A lot of people talk about patriotism in 1940, but it was a—it's a little kitschy. It's not really where people were going um, with radio design. Kitsch wasn't—they were—they were were serious about radios. It wasn't something you were playing with. It was something that was serious and important. So, these are two examples of successful designs that Vasos did for RCA: the Super Six 15X. Um, was very very popular. It was one of the first kind of radios in plastic, kind of, um, tabletop radios. Some features that are very vasocian, if I could say, are like it were very large knobs. Um, I don't know if you could see. Sorry, um, it's too dark. But it's it kind of taking from those geometric shapes, that kind of simplification of the machinery. It's kind of a square box with very large round knobs, uh, very user friendly, you could say today. They didn't say that back then, but um, it, was, it had very large, um, glass, lighted glass dial. It was lighted so you could see it in the dark, which was nice. It had a big bullseye pointer. It was easy to read from various angles. So this is very much what Vassus was about, was taking the user, taking you know, the listener into account and thinking about what they needed. It wasn't so much about splashy colors and style. Um, The little nipper radio, one of my personal favorites, just in this um, beautiful uh, white Bakelite radio with the red dial, again, drawing attention to where you need to turn, where you need to go, and um, just kind of taking the user into account. And this was a lot of what I found was very interesting about Vasos, and not something that's really been talked about a lot in terms of 1930s designers. People talk about Henry Dreyfus in the 1950s and in terms of ergonomic design, um, in terms of Joseph and Josephine, and the, the way he thought about the human body. But Vasos is a really um, early kind of study in human-centered design. Um, I've been invited to speak to NASA next month, and it's because they're really thinking also in terms of their satellite designers. Like, What are ways in which we can design for the body? You know, what are ways we can improve our designs, even looking back to the past to understand what they were thinking. This is a, um, a drawing I found in his archive, kind of thinking about touch and the eye and the finger, turning the knobs and the dials, um, so thinking very carefully about how we interact with tuning, and I don't know, um, you know, back in the 30s, if you were tuning improperly, it would sound really bad. I don't, I mean, like I know today, if you, you tune things properly, you get a bad sound. But I think in the 30s, it was very extreme if you didn't have proper tuning. So that was a very important feature of RCA's radio and what they sold as part of their product it was good tuning. And Vassus was behind that effort. You can see in this advertisement for this console radio. And Vassos didn't just design uh, tabletop radios. He did console radios. And one of his kind of uh, additions to that was to make the radio go to the ground. It wasn't you know, still on spindly legs, high boy or low boy. It was going to the ground. It was a very beautiful piece of furniture. He um, it was very much about electric tuning for all. You know, it's just about making it accessible and easy to use. And that was something that RCA featured in their advertising. Vasos wrote a number of articles for Broadcast News, RCA's in-house journal, which I just mentioned, and this is one of my favorite. He's talking about the importance of the knob. Excuse me, and he writes an article called Streamline Convenience. A minor detail becomes important. And he's not just talking about people who are tuning their radio, although that's important, but also about the um, broadcast technicians who are using the equipment that he's designing um, and how important a knob can be when you're relying on your fingers to control um, the machinery. So this is something he's really attentive to. He, um, another um, contribution that Vastos makes to RCA is that he unifies the look of products across company, company lines. And this is a, an example here in terms of the mass-produced radios that he designed. You can kind of see a, a family resemblance. Um, he's, you can see him standing there. He's, he was petite. Um, he's standing there with um, his colleagues from RCA with some of the radios that he designed. And you really kind of see Um, continuity. But not only was there continuity in the radio products that he designed and manufactured as the lead designer for RCA, he was involved in all aspects of the company, and this slide is meant to (laughs) show you some of the different areas of the company that he was involved with, including the, um, the design of the transmitter buildings. And this was a huge business for RCA was to design the transmitter buildings. People had to license their equipment from them. He also designed the equipment, like this um, transmitter here that he um, famously made the dials at hand level, you know, the things that it was easy to operate. So that's one of his important designs for this transmitter equipment. He also designed the broadcasting, um, the recording equipment, like this microphone in in the middle, kind of thinking about how to guide the user not to touch the part that you hear. (laughs) So kind of creating a beautiful, streamlined design, something elegant, but also something very functional. And finally, he created, came up with the idea, because this was the time before you had like a million different departments where everyone was specialized, like before you had marketing and all the different departments. So it was like someone could come up with all these great ideas. So he came up with the idea for the magic brain and the, the magic eye campaign for RCA, which is our prominent marketing campaign in the 1930s, and it was the idea was that the machine is so smart, you know, it will direct you, it will help you to um, get to the right station, it will help you find it, it was just this, um, yeah, this clever marketing campaign. <laughs> so he was kind of... in. Eye that when you turn the knob, it opened and closed a little, see that at the bottom of the iris? Right. <laughs> Thank you. Exactly, yes, exactly. That that and Vassos came up with the idea because he went into the manufacturing section and he saw that they were, you know, what they were adding, and he said, we have to really highlight, you know, this element of these incredible products that we're creating. So, you know, by the time Vasos is done with the company, it really is a major player in terms of radio manufacturing. When he started, they were really lagging behind, and that was why they brought him on board. So, not only did he work on all that other stuff and the mass-produced stuff, but also at RCA Laboratories in Princeton, New Jersey, where the David Sarnoff Library was before it came to Hagley, he was involved in the breakthrough design of the electron microscope, which um, you can see in this, this ad here. Um, he rendered it in blue and stainless steel, which was the first in the electronic field before he came involved all the Devices were black and electronics were black, so he brought in some um, statement and standardized colors for the company across all these different product lines. He worked on RCA submarine radar equipment. And again, that's where the dial became very important. When you're in the dark in a submarine, you need to be able to feel you know, the pointer on the dial. And his design for a knob became very well-known and a standard in the fields for how you can feel your way in the dark. Finally, this is one of my favorite kind of things about John Vassos was he was so intertwined with RCA company history that his illustration in the middle is from his 1931 book Contempo. It was called Great God Radio. And they used this illustration as the book plate for RCA's library at the RCA Laboratories. And even like well into like the early 80s, they were still using this image from 1931 of this great god radio, of you know, so sort of entwined with the company history in a really um, interesting and deep way, but still sort of still unknown because the company records haven't been, you know, widely used by the public and widely known, which is, you know, one of the reasons that he's not very well known. RCA pumped millions of dollars in research to set the stage for the next media revolution, which was television. And this was something they had working on through the 1930s. And um, they tapped Vasos to create the shape for this new device, something extremely important they realized to their future as a corporation. And um, he worked with the Russian scientist Vladimir Zworkin, the inventor of the cathode, to create a shape and form for the television. And in the center is this very dramatic, splashy display at the 1939 New York World's Fair at the RCA Pavilion, where Roosevelt opened the fair. It was it was like just a very big moment in television history. But I've sort of forgotten. Like you don't think of 1939 World Fair in television, but for me studying media history, it just seemed like wow, I didn't know they had TVs in the 1930s. I, I found this really interesting. And again, like how do you create a shape for it? How do you sell it to people? How do you explain it? And part of this, they called it the phantom television. In the middle, my argument is they made it clear in loose light plastic to show people it wasn't magic, it was real. You know, these were real electronic elements inside of the television. And this, you could see people like looking at it, like, what is this thing? (laughs) So it was um, this very kind of exciting moment in television history. It's a very splashy moment. And people went crazy. Um, There were four different television sets that Vasos designed for RCA that were released in 1939, mostly in the New York City area. That was where they began regular broadcasting. And so these, radio, these televisions were being sold in that area. And people just went crazy, like flooding the windows of Bloomingdale's and Wanamaker's to just get a glimpse of this new technology. And again, this, this image comes from broadcast news, which is like such a great source of um, media history. Just a little bit more about the television. Um, Vassos proudly noted that his receiver had no extraneous decoration whatsoever. And again, he's drawing on his affiliation to modern design. He's not adding extra stuff to it. He's just making it. It's just very beautiful. It looks like a beautiful piece of furniture. Um, If you ever get a chance to see it, a lot of television museums do still have this. This is the TRK-12. This was the largest television that he designed. And if you go to Hyde Park to the Snuggery, you can also see one there. Since RCA gave a gift to FGR to thank him for opening the fair at RCA of, of this TRK 12 television, so it's a t- it's kind of a small picture there. But there's there's the TRK 12 at the Snuggery. So you can you can visit that TV there. But also in terms of like the marketing, I found it interesting of how you, how do you sell this new thing? And I don't know about you, but I don't sit around in my you know, gowns, and my husband doesn't wear a tuxedo to watch television. <laughs> <laughs> um, that image on top there. But it was so, like, what is this thing? Like, I just didn't know how to market it. It was something so new and strange, almost. During World War II, Vasos entered the war as a specialist in camouflage, which was an area that artists gravitated to. His good friend, Harry Hopkins of the FDR Brain Trust, got him the job. And he ended up serving in the Middle East Theater in the OSS. He came out at the rank of colonel. Um, At this time, he and his wife are are living in um, the Norwalk area of of Connecticut, and he has a New York City office. So the war changes a lot of things in terms of the technologies that RCA is producing. There's new directions company-wide. But again, Vasos is asked to help them with another new technology that's emerging. So he led the design efforts of the company's most important advanced record format, the 45 RPM. So he designs this beautiful 45 RPM player. And when I talk to audiences, that's usually what people remember, you know, of the, the Vasos design, and you could plug this into your stereo. And I have, I have one of these. It's so pretty. It's just, and again, it's that design, the elegance, and the this, this spare, you know, elegant detail of, of this record player, some of, some of which still work today, which is pretty incredible. He came up with the idea of doing color coded records. know so that you would know which records you were playing. Um, So yeah, he got involved in that. I thought that was pretty significant. He also was asked to lead the design efforts for one of RCA's newest technologies which is the the mainframe computer and he got involved in designing the interface components for this um, RCA 501 computer in 1958. It didn't take off. It wasn't a big hit. It was um, kind of, you know, the company was going perhaps in the wrong direction. But what's significant is, well, you can see up there is like VASO color-coded the technology of the person, you know, technology of the person running the machine. So again, he's like thinking about the user and how it's going to, how they're going to work and how they're going to find their way around among this really complex technology. And again, I think he's thinking about phobia. I think he's thinking about machinery and some of the fears that we might have about how these machines work and trying to simplify things and make it more accessible. In terms of the post-war television boom, which you know, like radio in the 30s, people are going out and buying televisions um, like it's a necessity in the, in the post-war era. That was when television really took off, as you know. Vastos redesigned the television camera in 1946, and it was used throughout the golden age of television. And much to the chagrin of like CBS, they had to use this RCA camera. They were not happy. Um, he also came up with the idea of something called an advanced design center, where he invited people like Robert Stern, who was then the head of Yale School of Architecture, to come on board and scholars and other prominent thinkers to think about what television is going to look like in the future. And they came up with some really great ideas, like very small televisions that would like fit in your pocket or very you know large television screens, big, big projector screens, which is kind of what we have today. We have very small screens that we carry in our pocket or at home a lot of people have really big screens on their wall. So kind of thinking, you know, about what the future of television, where it would go. And finally he was involved in the 1964 World's Fair, where a lot of people had their a big introduction to color television in designing the pavilion at that World's Fair. So i kind of say all this to kind of show his trajectory and the importance and the contribution that he made to RCA over his time there. He was also a leader in his profession. He was the founder and first president of the American Design Institute in 1938. So he's making a big contribution to the emerging field of industrial design, which by this time, is an important field. People are recognizing that it's significant. When it, when it emerged in the '20s, like everyone called themselves an industrial designer. But then he was involved in creating the professionalization of the field, creating um, you know the educational criteria, you know what it would take to be an actual industrial designer. He became the first chairman of the IDSA, which today is the largest professional association of industrial designers in 1965, and he participated in many events representing the field, including a 1954 talk at MoMA about what should be considered excellence in design. And a lot of people were thinking, they think about that today. You know, People think about their Apple phone, that it's beautifully designed, and maybe you've heard of Johnny Ivy, who's the prominent Apple designer, and people, you know, it's amazing. A lot of people know him. There's been biographies of him, or he's talking a lot about Apple phone, or people think about design in terms of Apple. But I think in terms of John Vassos, like what was it that made his design so successful are similar to what makes our iPhone, for instance, so successful, is its ease of use, its simplicity, it's a square, it's a circle, it's just really user-friendly and tactile, you know, something you're touching like a knob. So I think that he kind of recognized the importance of this everyday design, this technology design for regular people. And so MoMA invites him to come and give a talk and it kind of was like a fist fight broke out because the people from the MoMA side were like, no, we think our chairs are so beautiful. These are the most beautifully designed things in the world. And people like Vasos who were on stage, the designers were like, no, you have to think about everyday things. You know, the typewriter, the, the razor, the radio, you know, this is the best of American design. So it was an interesting debate within the field of what should be considered beautiful. I think it's still true today you know, in some, in some ways. So it kind of raises interesting questions about what should be considered good design. Vasos, I mean, even though um, Robert Sarnoff died in 1971, he retired in 1970, Vasos stayed on with the company. Um, he didn't get along that well with Robert Sarnoff. He had some great ideas about redoing the company's logo. So it was like the meatball logo, like the RCA with the lightning bolt. They call that the meatball. Sorry, I didn't really show it. But so he's like, no, we got to redo it and make it modern. Um, but Robert Sarnoff didn't take his idea. They went with another direction with a more computerized looking logo. Anyway, the company was also falling a bit into decline. They had taken on too many different areas. and um, So anyway, Vasos retired in 1975, and he was I just love this beautiful honor that the company gave him um, 1935 to 1975, kind of referring to him as the magic brain of the company. And that I just think is such a beautiful tribute to his contribution to the company and to great design there. And um, he did a lot more, which I haven't really talked about in this talk tonight, but he just was somebody who was involved in designing jukeboxes and movie theaters, United Artists movie theaters in the post-war era when they were competing with television. So, I mean, there's just so many ways in which he touched the look and feel of so many media technologies. And today, when you're in your car and you're tuning your radio, I mean, the, the knobs just won't go away. And car manufacturers tried a few years ago. They're like, we don't need knobs. You know, We'll just make everything like Wi-Fi and computer driven and you just speak your commands. People were like, no we need knobs, (laughs) we need to touch, we need to feel the technology, we need to interact with it. And that's kind of where I feel like he made such a great contribution. And he knew he had made a great contribution too. And he wanted to write an autobiography. Here he is, kind of a more elderly John. Um, He knew he he had an important story to tell. And unfortunately he was going blind and he wasn't able to do it. He didn't have any children, so he didn't have like a dutiful daughter or son to write his story. So kind of got left to the wayside he died in um, 1985 and his um, nephew donated his papers, largely to the Smithsonian American Archives of, Ameri- of American Art. And they kind of just got like put there and they're kind of still there <laughs> and you know, not cataloged or they're just there. And so it just was my honor to, to be able to piece together this, his story and you know, to kind of talk about him and to kind of bring him to the as somebody who might be able to teach young designers today or people interested in media history about what it was like in the past. And um, I'm just so honored to be able to do this, to have done this work, and to work in the David Sarnoff Library, and to share this work with you as well. And thank you so much for being such a great audience and for your comments about the magic eye. And I look forward to hearing your questions, if you have any. Thanks.